Hello and welcome to a podcast produced by Intergentis, the McGill Journal of International Law and Legal Pluralism. We're a brand new web-based journal, and our first issue, exploring the theme of international law and people's resistance, was released in November of this year. To read this recently published issue, as well as op-eds and other content on a variety of topics in international law, visit our website at intergentis.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-G-E-N-T-E-S dot com. I'm Tobin Lippold. And I'm Annette Angel. And in this first edition of the Intergentes podcast, we'll be contributing to the theme of our first issue, International Law and People's Resistance, by talking about some of the legal issues surrounding hacktivism, a combination of the words hacking and activism. As we do so, we'll speak with Gabriella Coleman, a professor of anthropology at McGill University, and Lex Gill, a law student and affiliate at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Although the precise definition of hacktivism is controversial, it generally refers to the exploitation of internet security vulnerabilities as a form of political protest. Hacktivism has a long and varied history, coinciding with the growth of the internet itself. Over the years, targets of hacktivism have included government websites, credit card companies, and banks, to name just a few. But in the wake of the November 2015 terrorist attacks in Paris, a new form of hacktivism came into the spotlight when the hacker group Anonymous declared war on Daesh, also known as ISIS, who had claimed responsibility for the attacks. According to a video posted to YouTube, Anonymous would launch the biggest operation ever against the terrorist group. Compared to previous forms of hacktivism, this development stands out in several ways. For one thing, the target is a violent organization, condemned by the international community and viewed by many as the worst kind of criminals. This is in stark contrast to traditional hacktivism targets which have usually been corporations or government agencies. Another difference is in the choice of the hackers to use analogies of violence to describe their actions. In the past, the language of cyber warfare has mostly been used by those condemning the breach of computer systems, while hackers themselves generally prefer to speak in terms of freedom of expression, or of civil disobedience at most. But in their November 2015 video statement, Anonymous declared, Know that we will find you and we will hold nothing back. We will launch our biggest operation ever against you. Wait for many cyber attacks. War has been declared. Here to speak with us today about the significance of this declaration is Gabriella Coleman, Professor of Anthropology and Wolf Chair in Scientific and Technological Literacy at McGill University, and author of the book Hacker, Hoaxer, Whistleblower, Spy, the Many Faces of Anonymous. Thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. Maybe you can start by talking about the historical roots of Anonymous. We've heard a lot about their political activities, but early on, the name wasn't necessarily associated with activism. How did they develop into the group we know today? Well, that's exactly what makes Anonymous such an odd, fascinating political phenomenon. It was a name that was never meant to be used for activism. It originated on the infamous 
anonymous image board called 4chan. It's not known exactly when, but sometime maybe around mid-2000, people started to use this Uber name, Anonymous, to organize these fearsome trolling campaigns where individuals or organizations are targeted for the purposes of either humiliating them or just done for the sake of enjoyment. And then there was an event, a big, big trolling event against the Church of Scientology that formed the basis for the transformation of Anonymous so that others started to use the name for activism. Initially, many of the political campaigns around Anonymous were used either to support internet freedom, such as supporting WikiLeaks, or to fight against censorship. But starting in 2011, the name started to be used for all sorts of political causes outside of the internet. Initially for social movements such as supporting the Arab Spring, Occupy, and then in recent times for everything from fighting against police brutality to fighting terrorism. Anonymous is famous for a range of tactics that usually relate to digital media, but not exclusively so. Sometimes there's uh, street protests. But the digital tactics they're most famous for are things like hacking, something called a DDoS, Distributed Denial of Service Attack, which is not a hack. It's when you overwhelm a server with too many requests. There's a lot of publicity material in the form of videos, images, Twitter storms. They also work with offline activists to provide technological assistance and engage in forms of intelligence gathering and reconnaissance, which is something we've actually seen with our fights against ISIS. Some people are critical of Anonymous because they lack focus. I think that one of the strengths of their form of activism is that they're very unpredictable. Sometimes it's very important to have forms of activism which are well-honed, well-defined, but I think it's important to also have forms of activism that are really hard to understand and predict, and Anonymous fits that description more than anything else that exists today. Despite Anonymous characterizing their own activities as activism and civil disobedience, they have also been characterized by some as cyber criminals or even as cyber terrorists. If you could speak to why Anonymous in particular has been targeted in this way and what they've done to resist that label. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Anonymous certainly is often understood as cyber criminals because they break the law when they hack or when they engage in a DDoS. The cyber terrorism label is an interesting one. I think that there have been a couple of attempts by the U.S. government to kind of insinuate that there were cyber terrorists, but I think that has never worked. Their designation as criminals, on the other hand, is something that at least part of the public does buy into. Anonymous themselves resist these labels by emphasizing what they do as activism. And along with their actions, Anonymous is very famous for publishing videos and manifestos. Now, the other domain we can look at is popular culture. And here I'm thinking of shows like Mr. Robot, House of Cards, The Good Wife, a German film called Who Am I? And in all these shows, the hacker figures are portrayed in a pretty positive way as kind of noble, anti-heroes or activists. And so this has helped them resist being 100% tagged as cyber criminals, even though they can't fully escape that designation. 
Well, Anonymous may have largely avoided this label of cyber terrorism, there are still a lot of their activities that are framed as criminal mm -hmm. in domestic and international legislation. How has this impacted Anonymous's strategies or marginalized their ability to organize? Well, first of all, certain cyber criminals, unlike Anonymous, will be very quiet when they engage in their activity. They won't be waving a flag saying, hey, look what we did, whereas Anonymous tends to wave that flag. There's different motivations and intentions. Many of Anonymous's activity that can be considered cybercrime are very minimal in terms of the damage it causes. And here I'm thinking of a website defacement where you enter into a computer and you change the front page and it's like graffiti. There should be consequences, but should you have your entire life ruined? Probably not. And it's very interesting to look at the hackers in the UK, like Mustafa Al-Bassam, who was one of the hackers who founded Internet Feds and Lulsec. Now, he got almost no jail time because he was 16 when he was caught. Currently, he is contributing in very positive ways to the cause of internet freedom and privacy. He will be starting a PhD at University College London. He's worked at Privacy International. And yet, if he had been a little bit older and in the United States, he would have been in jail for 10 years. In terms of how it's reorganized activity, on the one hand, there's still hacking that's occurring under the mantle of Anonymous, but it's not occurring under one or two groups as in 2011 and 12. It seems to be many different groups or individuals who are using the name, and it's happening much more internationally as well. And I think that's how the arrests have changed things. It's not going to get rid of this activity. It's going to make it more sporadic and more decentralized. So we've talked a little bit already about how the law affects hacktivism, but could you get a little bit more into how legal framings of hacktivism are actually perceived within the community? Is there any kind of consensus on what legal instruments should look like? I think in the context of the United States, everyone agrees that the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is too broad and too blunt. And it was the case against Aaron Schwartz that really put this issue front and center for the hacker community. And in the UK and Australia, there's similar acts, but the judicial cultures there are different enough that when hackers get in trouble, the law is applied so that the punishments are more proportionate. There's an ongoing case right now concerning a hacker called Lori Love, and he's in the UK. And he's charged in the United States, and they're trying to extradite him. And from his perspective, in the UK, he will get a fair and balanced trial. But in the US, what will happen to him is more close to persecution than prosecution. I think that case really captures how hackers see their predicament. There should be legal consequences, but the United States is so over the top in terms of punishments that that needs to change. And people are afraid that countries in Western Europe and Canada might go in that direction. We saw last fall Anonymous coming out with the manifesto against ISIS. Mm -hmm. And in that respect, they're working with common goals to the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. So the question becomes, does the government have an incentive to not apply their legal norms when hacking is being done in a way that they agree with? Absolutely. 
So we're not going to see any arrests related to op ISIS. The big conspiracy theories are that you have the government who's actually puppeteering things, possibly even implanting people. Now, that's very hard to prove. But we can certainly say they will aggressively go after hackers who hack into corporations. But when it comes to ISIS, where they have engaged in DDoSing, hacking, we won't see any prosecution whatsoever. What we've seen with Op ISIS is a kind of infusion of people with military backgrounds into Anonymous. And this was very upsetting to a lot of longtime Anonymous participants who tended to be anti-military, anti-US government. When no one controls the name, an operation like Op ISIS can change the future direction of Anonymous. So given a lot of these shifts we've talked about, including the criminalization of Anonymous's activities and hacking activities more generally and how that's changed some of their tactics. How do you see their contribution shifting or changing in the future? It is always really hard to say. They've been around for a while. It's hard for them to match some of their previous high-profile operations. What is fascinating about Anonymous is that there really is something powerful about this idea that anyone can be anonymous. It's very attractive to a group of people to say, we're going to do something, we're not going to take credit, in part because it decenters the individual, and so people can pay attention to the action. I do think that the era of very, very public activity, we are lulsec, we are antisec, look at everything we do, I think we won't ever really return to that because it just made them very, very weak. We will have a geography that's even more obscure when it comes to the illegal activity with ongoing continued public activity with things like the training or the propaganda making and these sorts of things. So some hacktivists contest the legal regimes governing computer use because they don't necessarily take account of the motivations behind hacking activities. And they may be enforced differently depending on whether governments approve of the goals of a particular operation. Other forms of hacktivism avoid unauthorized computer use altogether. For example, the anonymous offshoot control sec operates by flagging the Twitter accounts of alleged members of Daesh. It then tries to pressure Twitter into closing the blacklisted accounts by offering its findings to media outlets. In this way, the group is able to bring political pressure to bear without overstepping the boundaries of the law. But that doesn't mean the approach doesn't create problems of its own. News sources report that it may inadvertently thwart government actors who might be using the targeted accounts as gateways to infiltrate Daesh itself. Also, there is a concern that innocent accounts may be targeted by overzealous hacktivists. In fact, the at your anon news Twitter account called it deeply stupid to engage in social media censorship, since it legitimizes internet censorship in general. Issues such as these have led some groups to suggest that lawmakers need to take a more nuanced approach to regulating computer use one that is more in tune with the realities of the contemporary internet and allows for a more appropriate balancing of rights. Here to talk to us about the potential for an Internet Bill of Rights is Lex Gill, a law student at the McGill Faculty of Law and an affiliate at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Thank you so much for joining us, Lex. Thanks, I'm really glad to be here. 
In a recent paper you wrote with the Berkman Center, you discussed an emerging digital constitutionalism. What can you tell us about how online governance norms have emerged? So this is a study I co-authored with Dennis Redeker and Urs Gasser at the Berkman Center. We proposed the idea of digital constitutionalism as a sort of overarching shared language to describe a series of different initiatives that have emerged over the last, say, 25 years that seek to sort of articulate a set of rights and norms for how the internet ought to function. This is kind of curious because it sort of presupposes the idea that the internet is its own distinct jurisdictional sphere, a land that ought to have laws to govern it. If you've ever read John Perry Barlow's Declaration for the Independence of Cyberspace, it's a manifesto that came out in the 1990s, or even hacker manifestos from that era. There's this idea of the digital sphere being this lawless, decentralized Wild West governed by a sort of ethic of absolute freedom, intense creativity, norms that suggest that this is a space beyond the jurisdiction of traditional political entities. This is not something the state can or should control. Over the last 25 years, we've seen a sort of maturation of the internet governance communities, the whole constellation of organizations that seek to adopt technical standards, manage the growth of the internet, participate in resource allocation. So those organizations have grown and become much more sophisticated. And of course, we've seen a deep set of transformations to the way we use and interface with the network. Along with those changes... We also see a deeper desire to codify rules for the digital space and certainly an increased sophistication in what those rules include. We studied 30 different bills of rights for the internet, internet magna cartas, etc., written from everyone from the Electronic Frontier Foundation to the Brazilian government. And there are certain norms that come up over and over again, like the right to access the internet itself, freedom of expression and freedom of information, which are sort of at the core of what the internet is and does, very deep principle of openness by design. Over time, we've also seen the emergence of other values that maybe you wouldn't have expected in the early 90s. Conversations about protection of children in the digital sphere or conversations around privacy, surveillance following the Snowden disclosures, a far more sophisticated conversation about what privacy rights might entail, including not just protection against unjustified surveillance and rule of law issues, but also um, specific right to anonymity on the internet and conversations about a right to use encryption technology. Given that you've talked both about a proliferation of declarations and charters, both in international law, as well as more and more legislation by states, I'm wondering if you can comment on what you think the role of the state might be moving forward, or if they should have a role in this area. Well, I think it's important to say that states do have a huge role in regulating and governing the internet. Whether or not that role is perceived to be legitimate is a completely different question. Skeptics of this canonical view of the internet as this magical space beyond state jurisdiction have sort of asked whether it might actually be preferable in a maturing digital sphere to start to regulate before that absence of regulation either puts us at the mercy of different kinds of authoritarianism or different kinds of corporate control. So increasingly, we've talked about the need for government intervention, protection of vulnerable groups, 
and the ability to, to some degree, regulate parts of the digital sphere have become part of a consensus. However, how far you extend the scope of state regulation is an open question. In Europe, there was increasingly a proposal, particularly coming out of Germany, partly out of France, for routing internet traffic only within Europe, or certain kinds of traffic only within Europe, as a response to the revelation that the NSA was engaging in widespread and deep-rooted surveillance of the network. So this poses a, a whole set of problems. When you start imposing these kinds of jurisdictional restrictions on how data moves and operates in the digital space, you're starting to superimpose a jurisdiction on something that, that wasn't quite designed to be that way in the first place. Despite the fact that it's motivated by a desire for greater privacy, greater control over data, potentially greater security, there are critics that say, in fact, it may achieve none of those things. And in fact, it may exacerbate issues of state censorship or state surveillance. There has to be a balance between those values. And there's not really a, a particularly clear way to do that yet. You're talking about a lot of different types of emerging rights as well as competing interests. Um, and in the paper, you noted a few key ones that have come up most frequently. But I'm wondering if you can sort of talk about how you're seeing those rights being balanced. Right. I think that's an interesting question because we often talk about balancing of rights as something that happens within the courts or within the legislative process. And I think that at least in Canada, there's been not a huge public debate. When you talk about hackers violating privacy rights with leaks, for example, of people's private data in favor of freedom of information or access to information, it's important to ask whose privacy are they violating. You can see the same thing around the Snowden disclosures. That's not necessarily a privacy question, but maybe one of national security. But the question of who's being protected by secrecy is an overarching theme, not just in hacker politics and internet politics, but in social justice movements generally. And where people in positions of power are taking advantage of secrecy, of, of obfuscation, I think that's natural to the social movements that are native to the internet to want to challenge that. It's important to differentiate the tactic that's engaged and the rights that are engaged by that tactic and the sort of political or ideological agenda that that's associated with. And that will help us better understand in what direction we ought to be balancing rights to begin with. So have you seen a, a hierarchy emerging between these norms that we've discussed and how can these internet rights that we're talking about emerging be situated in relation to other human rights? I think that sometimes we build an artificial distinction between internet rights and human rights. Probably it'll look pretty silly in 20 or 30 years to have this sort of distinction between rights on and off the network. What's important that comes out of the literature is that we see these documents consistently articulate things that we already accept to be universally understood human rights and also increasingly understood economic and social rights. So for example, one of the most common things that comes up in the documents we studied is the rule of law. And that comes out of conversations around surveillance and people objecting to the idea of secret courts making secret decisions about secret surveillance on the internet. Freedom of expression is consistently emerging, rights of children. These are not things that are unique to the digital environment. Certainly there are things that come out 
For example, rights to anonymity and encryption and open standards and interoperability, these are things that are closer to the heart of what the network is. But I think that all of them have a root in a legal principle or a human right that we've recognized elsewhere. So I think that the real work is not about entrenching these rights as distinct internet rights, but rather reinterpreting and reimagining human rights for the 21st century in a way that's inclusive rather than exclusive of the technologies that we use. So although normative systems specific to internet activity are slowly emerging, many questions remain unanswered in the struggle to balance such important interests as national and international security, privacy, government transparency, and freedom of expression. Can these rights be infringed, and to what extent, in the name of protecting digital security? Anonymous's targeting of Daesh highlighted the debate concerning the need for nuanced approaches that might remedy some of the perceived limits of current legal regimes in regulating computer use. There is no perfect answer to these difficult questions, and the balancing of interests may remain a contextual endeavor. But given the continued popularity of hacktivism and the importance of digital security, the answers we provide as a society will have a profound impact on the shape of internet use. You've been listening to a podcast produced by Intergentis, the McGill Journal of International Law and Legal Pluralism. This podcast was written, researched, and produced by Annette Angel, Amanda Garamani, and Tobin Lippold, with music by Tobin Lippold. Special thanks to our guests for this episode, Gabriella Coleman and Lex Gill. If you want to comment on this story, read our first issue focusing on international law and people's resistance, or find out more about our journal, go to intergentis.com, I-N-T-E-R-G-E-N-T-E-S.com. Thanks for listening.